Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I sat down with Jeb Bush in Miami this week for my Axe Files on CNN TV show, and I found him to be in an expansive mood. We had a great conversation uh, about his family, his political career, and how it ended, and the man who sits in the White House today. Here's that full conversation. Governor Bush... Good to be with you here at the Biltmore Hotel, the stately Biltmore Hotel. Thanks for coming for down. storied history. Great, great, to, great to come down. So we're, it's that season again. Everybody's lining up to uh, run for president. Uh, any PTSD? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's deja vu all over again. Now the Democrats are, there's no barrier of entry really to run for president. And there are lots of reasons why people do it, you know, apparently. So they'll have as many people as we did, which makes it, if you're a political junkie, I guess it's kind of fun to watch. Uh, Not so much if you're a candidate. No, if you're a candidate, it's a little bit harder. Um, what advice do you have for them? Connect by being genuine, you know, first and foremost. you got to be who you are. It's so easy to know when you're not, when you're forced to, you know, be something you're not. It's just, it comes across so easy. People watch this stuff with their peripheral vision. Even then they know when someone's like overreaching, trying to be something they're not. So that's the first step. Um, I don't, it's hard because you gotta, you gotta break out, but you can't break out with crazy stuff because then. It's been done, you know. It has been, one guy did it, yep, I admit. <laughs> but do we want that again? I mean, do we want, do we want a, um, a campaign about things that aren't relevant in the lives of people. Do we want a campaign you know, that basically validates the 16 election as the norm, the new normal? I hope not. You, um, you are the front runner. I remember calling you the front runner Ugh, I hate my, that word. myself. Uh, and you raised a lot of money and you had a lot of endorsements and um, it was supposed to be Bush versus Clinton, you know, the yeah. battle of the dynasties. In fact, I remember your mom saying... I was going to say, my mother was smart enough to know that that wasn't going to happen. Yeah, what did you think when she said, uh, when she said there have to be other families who can contribute a president here and there? Well, in retrospect, she, it, it made a lot of sense. At the moment, I thought it was like a little out of line since I was watching it live on TV <laughs> and she decided to, you know, to, to do it. Um, I went and told her, I said, Mom, come on, give me a break. I'm thinking about running. Let, it, let me think about this. And she's, okay, I promise I won't say it again. And then I, like two weeks later, C-SPAN starts advertising the show about first ladies, and they have her saying the same thing. And I say, Mom, you promised. And she goes, I didn't say it, and hung up on me. And then she called me back five minutes later. Oh, yeah, I remember. That was prior. I taped that. So... It, it, but it, was she, do you think she was uh, worried for you? She was worried for me. And I do think the dynasty thing was not helpful. Because um, there, look, 
you think about it, we have 330 million people. There are capable people outside uh, the world of Clinton and Bush. So uh, for whatever reason, I didn't prevail. I gave it my all. I was honored to be able to be in a position to run. I, I learned a lot. I wish I'd won, but I didn't. And, you know, you move on. I'm out of therapy and back to my normal <laughs> you, life. You, you, uh, some people would say you have to get into therapy if you think of running for president. It's, it's wild. I mean, it's, uh, there are things that you... I, I, most of my campaigning was town hall meetings. And so, God, I mean, you quickly see the, that everybody... You know, your five-point plan is not really relevant for someone who's got a child that has cancer or who's, you know, has student loans up the yin-yang. I mean, there, there are so many things you learn along the way that give you humility if you're really, you know, serious about leading. And it's, a, it's the right way to, to campaign. In, in 16, in the Republican primary, it was basically irrelevant. Yeah, wait, well, uh, and I want to talk about that and why it became irrelevant in a second. But when you say you have to be yourself, you have to be genuine, what if being yourself and being genuine is out of step with right. where your party is, then you lose. You know, I, I think I might be uh, the poster child for that, but you can't, you, you know, you have a life afterwards. And uh, I think you have to look yourself in the mirror. You have to, you have to um, be true to your family and to your beliefs. If you want to be in a position to lead, uh, and in a campaign, if you invalidate everything that you believe in order to win, you're really not going to be a very good leader. You're not going to have the trust with the American people, I don't think, to, to lead. And so you can be president, but are you going to be able to solve the problems that you believe are really important? Can you draw people towards your cause if, if people don't believe, believe it's an act? So I think genuineness, particularly in 2020, maybe it'll actually be more important. I would hope that it also, uh, the virtue of civility might actually be um, a, a benefit politically. There's no evidence of that right now, but I think so there's it would a, set a contrast. It would, and there are millions of people that are really disgusted with our politics right now, and maybe, they're, uh, maybe they can be persuaded that there's you know, a better way, a better path forward. Donald Trump announced his candidacy the day after you announced yours in in uh, 2015, I believe. Yeah. When he came down that escalator uh, and you saw him and what he said, how seriously did you take him as a candidate? I'll be honest, I didn't. I, I don't know if he did, but I mean, to his credit, I don't think anybody took him seriously, but he tapped into a deep-seated uh, anxiety that a lot of people in this country feel, still do today. So, you know, it, uh, in retrospect, there's nothing I would have done differently if I felt like that he was going to be the nominee when he w went down the stairs in Trump Towers. A kind of unorthodox, you know, from the get-go, it was an unorthodox campaign. He broke the norms, and to his credit, he won. I mean, I give him credit politically for this. Uh, my prayer, because I do pray for every president. I prayed for your your friend and, and our president, Barack Obama, every day, and I pray for President Trump every day because it's so important to have a president that focus on all Americans, you know, my prayer is that he wakes up someday soon and, and realizes he's president of the United States. He's not, not running for office. He's not, he has to lead for all of us. Um, this is, we're living in perilous times. We've not seen the peril play out right in front of us, but uh, there, are, there are 15 different things that could happen that, where you'd want a president that really focused on what it is to be president. 
you uh, at the end of you had your interactions with him obviously yeah he, he's a branding uh, master he branded you low energy Jeb and that must have been particularly galling to you because you talk to people around the state and they remember you <laughs> as governor and uh, yeah. that is not the way they would have described you and it's not the way you would have described yourself was it irritating you know I was so focused on my own mission I didn't it didn't bother me that much uh, but the idea that you know I, I'm in pretty good shape I work out every day I'm <laughs> like uh, I as governor I worked my tail off as a candidate I you know worked hard too it seemed weird to me seemed foreign to, to um, what I knew to be true but um, this branding thing you know branding people is kind of a new idea it didn't exist per se 10 years ago now we're all branded we're all a brand we're like toothpaste um, we're people you know, and wasn't it wasn't that sort of a surrogate for something else though? Wasn't it a surrogate for civility? Yeah. For no, I think that's right. Uh, it's you don't disparage people, and you're weak, and you're low energy. Can uh, I tell you a quick story about yeah, this? Yeah, sure. Because this this really described um, my campaign. I'm in front of 250 people, town hall meetings, spilling my guts, hugging people, crying with them, laughing with them. It's really a phenomenal experience. And 30 minutes away, President Trump is having one of his raucous, you know, rallies with 3,000 people, and he calls me a, um, I can't say it, but he, it's, it starts with A and ends in whole. And, and he says it three or four times. He You've breaks got a the, very literate audience. <laughs> they'll figure that out. Figure it out yeah. So uh, Dana Bash comes to the covering Trump. Comes remember to the editor in New Hampshire. Right? Yeah, the editor comes. Editor, got to get there. Got to get Bush's response. So she comes and says, uh, do you hear what uh, Trump called you? And I said, no. And I said, well, I can't tell it. I can't tell you what he said. Well, how can I respond if you can't tell me? We went back and forth. The press corps <laughs> yeah. is laughing. She finally says, okay, okay, he called you blank. Right. And I said, well, that's great, and walked away. And the only way I would have been news that day was to say, no, I'm not that. He's that. Right. That's not why people should run for president. And it so I, I just was, you know, I was a fish out of water in that game. And, and I think other candidates that tried to play that game looked really foolish. One of them was Marco Rubio, who you know very well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, here's a talented guy, very focused on policy, good, solid conservative, charismatic in, 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 in some ways. Felt like he had to play, the, play that game, and it looked... Diminished himself. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it was a really strange election for, in that regard. And again, I give President Trump all the credit of winning in a primary that, that uh, no one expected him to win, but now, now he's president, and you, you, you would you, hope there'd be something different. You went to uh, South Carolina, uh, and this was the end, basically the end of your campaign, but you said at a town hall meeting, I've got a lot of cool things to do other than sit around being miserable, listening to people demonize me and me feeling compelled to demonize them. That's a joke, elect Trump if you want that. And they did. Yeah. And they did. Why? Yeah, it, my words were taken out of context. I basically said, I'm not going to play the game of you know, Understood, the, yeah. the, the food fight. Um, people are hurting. We have tons of big issues uh, that we need to fulfill, to fix, before we continue to rise up again as a nation. So my point was, it's not, this is not the time to play these foolish games. And uh, President Trump obviously had a different view of that and he was successful because people were deeply angry or anxious 
or worried about the future and they wanted the big horse, irrespective of his views on anything, to come and drain the swamp. Fast forward, you know, the swamp's, swamp's actually now probably knee high rather than ankle high and not much has changed in Washington and may actually be worse. Well, the, how, how do you evaluate where we are and, where, and, and his performance? I can list the things that I think are helpful that have helped propel a little faster economic growth and rising income for Americans, which is great. So the tax cuts, the regulatory uh, changes, the judiciary over the long run, all those things are very positive. Um, he's put good people in um, areas of government that I you know, admire. Scott Gottlieb, who just left the FDA, there's some solid people that are uh, doing uh, serious work. Where, where I think the, the president, it's work in progress would be on the trade issues that actually, you know, if you parachuted in from Mars, you would think that was probably a liberal advocating protectionism because that historically has been the case. Um, we'll see how that plays out. I'm not as confident that, that um, the world order can be shaken up by one person negotiating with another, that there needs to be some norms established to be able to, um, to, to protect uh, American interests in the world. And then on foreign policy, again, we haven't had a major crisis to deal with, but this unilateralism or go-it-aloneism I think is really dangerous. Um, our friends no longer believe that they can trust the United States, and our enemies in many cases feel emboldened by this uh, approach that is I think it defies the, you know, the bilateral, multilateral, or bipartisan kind of consensus on foreign policy that has, by and large, kept America safe. You know, when I, when I talk to my Republican friends, um, they say, look, um, we got judges, yeah. we got tax cuts, we've got deregulation, uh, so we're getting stuff. And so I'd we have religious freedoms in other places where the president has kind of been very, very good. Um, for whatever reason, it's kind of surprising to me, but there's, there's a lot of good things he's done. But they say, and so, we have to tolerate a little bit of, yeah. a little bit of dishonesty, a little bit of incivility. Um, That's where I think they're wrong. I think you can, you, can be, you can honestly say he's done good things in terms of policy and applaud them. We would debate some of those yeah, things. Sure, and that's, that's politics. Yeah. But when, when people, uh, particularly presidents who have a duty beyond policy of being the leader of our country, the leader of the free world, uh, you remember the, the kind of the cliche that you, know, you tell your child when you're going through the, in the White House, uh, visiting the White House, you know, if you work hard and you're looking at the pictures of former presidents, work hard, play by the rules, you can be just like, you know, it's him now, but eventually it'll be just like her. And uh, I'm not sure many people are saying that now. I, I think the symbolic, you know, the, the kingly duties of, of the presidency, which the founders, you know, put the prime minister job and the kingly job together, that's where he falls short. And um, it's important. It's important during national tragedies. It's important in moments of crisis. It's important in the day-to-day creation of, of culture that, that um, helps sustain us. But he has struck... I guess the word is fear in, the, in some uh, members of your own party. He's sitting there with a 90% approval rating. There are people like Governor Sanford or Congressman Sanford in South Carolina. You and I were talking about this before we started shooting, who, uh, who defied him uh, on, the, 
on, on conservative yeah. grounds and lost his seat. There are others, Senator Flake, Senator Corker, who have tangled with him no longer uh, there. Sure. So I would say, first of all, the net result of this could be that we, the gains that we made in the Obama era in the state legislatures, governors, statewide elected officials, they, that's been reversed. Uh, we lost control of the House. This was a nationalized election, and it'll be a nationalized election in 2020. So while there's a steady base uh, to the president's credit, he's maintained that connection. Um, there is an erosion in you know a lot of other areas that could make uh, the Republican Party be the minority party for a while. But in the primaries, yeah, this becomes and Fox News is obviously very much uh, helpful to him in this regard, and has a oversized uh, bullhorn with. With, uh, all, with all true, with all true. I would just say that history is never linear. It never just you know we get we get into a mindset and we just assume that there's a new normal and it just becomes kind of that's the way it's always going to be. It never is that way. There's always a catalyst of something that changes the paradigm, that changes the context and how we view all these things. And um, and so, what's the world look like without a positive conservative uh, message? Do you consider him a conservative? No, I don't. Um, he's done conservative things, but he's not advocating little L liberal uh, democracy or freedom or liberty or entrepreneurial capitalism. That's not his. He's, his, his message is them and us, they're bad, we're good. Uh, and that message uh, has been successful for him personally. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, the conservative cause has lost its say. What, what's the interesting idea that conservatives now advocate? We've become reactionary. And uh, the party that I've affiliated myself with and the conservative ideology that I believe in, I think, is, is hopeful and optimistic. It's forward-leaning. It embraces science. It believes in the individual with the proper incentives can create you know, more opportunity for more people than any government program created. But you've got to advance that cause. You can't just be, they're bad, we're good. Um, that's not a sustainable message over the long haul, particularly with our demographics as a nation. You, uh, you spoke at Governor Hogan's inauguration. Uh, yeah. I didn't realize in, I was uh, in Maryland. part of his pre-campaign. But Well, would, have you talked to him about it? Have you given him advice? And if, if, if not, this is a great opportunity. What, <laughs> what advice would you give him? You know, I don't know. I don't know. It seems know if, like a suicide mission, doesn't it? It does seem like an uphill struggle. But I loved his inaugural speech because it talked about having to make tough choices and paying the price. His dad did it. He talked about John McCain. He talked about my dad. And uh, the civility and the courage to go against the tide at the right time, that integrity really mattered. It was a, it was a beautiful um, Did it sound to you like a prelude to it, a... And when I heard it, I started to think, oh, I guess I'm here. I was introducing him, and I was honored to be there, and I kind of got a sense that maybe this was uh, an opening, at least, for him to consider it. So, Do you think he should run? I think someone should run, uh, just because it, Republicans ought to be given a choice. But I think you're probably right, based on the premise you had, that he has a strong, loyal base, and it would be hard to beat him. It's hard to beat a sitting president. But to have a conversation about what it is to be a conservative, I think it's important. I mean, the, um, if, if in our country needs to have competing ideologies that people, you know, that are, that are dynamic, that focus on the world 
we're in and the world we're moving towards rather than revert back to a nostalgic time. I mean, I think, you know, the Democrats now are proposing new ideas, some of which I think are way out there. And if Republicans think they can just say that's bad and not offer a compelling alternative, that could be bad for us. In, uh, in his inaugural address, uh, your dad said, America's never wholly herself unless she is engaged in a high moral principle. We, as a people, have such a purpose today. It is to make kinder the face of the nation and gentler the yeah. face of the world. Uh, what's America's high moral principle today? It's eroded big time. Um, that's not to say that individuals in our country are acting on their sense of consciousness to help others. There are so many examples, and people don't ask if you got an R by your name or D by your name. I mean, the country, at our best, we're a bottom-up country. And the more we focus on the talking heads in Washington who are you know, obsessed about how the president's tweets, we, we ignore the fact that you know, in Houston, Texas, they've eliminated homelessness for veterans. In Massachusetts, they've developed an incredible strategy to deal with the opioid epidemic. There are all sorts of phenomenal things happening, not waiting for Washington to, you know, to get their act together. And my dad was talking about each of us have a responsibility to, to um, act on our consciousness to help others and to be kinder and gentler about it. I, I think that's still alive. I, I don't think that's an old cliche, um, but it, it's, it's clearly not that way in Washington. I, uh, when I read that quote, I looked at you and I saw you smile and um, you, I, you, everyone under, understands you lost your dad, you lost your yeah. mom, all in a, in a short period of time. And being the Bush family, you had to grieve in public yeah. uh, as public families do. But what are the, you know, this 25 years after he left the White House or 27, whatever it was, um, having lost re-election, uh, what did that outpouring uh, of, of public uh, it was, it was support mean to you? It meant a lot. It meant a lot to all of our family. In fact, it helped us, uh, you know, I still miss my dad there every day. I think of uh, my mom or dad and just kind of, it just comes, you know, into our lives. And people that have had similar kind of experiences share that same thing. And it's, it's unusual to lose both your parents at yeah, such a short period of time. It is, uh, but they didn't leave anything on the playing field. I mean, they lived a full life, and we celebrated their lives during those four days when, my, you know, when the nation took a, pressed the pause button. And what was interesting was all of the stories that came out that I never heard. I, two weeks ago, I was in Mexico on business with my wife. We're waiting to go back to Miami. This woman comes up to me and says, I gotta tell you a story. My, my mom was a flight attendant for 45 years and the greatest moment of her life happened in the early 1970s. If you can remind, if you're, young, you're old enough to remember, you know, they're smoking in the back, yeah, everybody's sure. drinking, everybody eats the full tray. So the, tra the weather gets horrible and it's bumping around and she's kind of frazzled and she's pulling her cart uh, to the front and there's a guy in a three-piece suit uh, and he looks up and says, just give me the trace, I'll get them in. That was my dad, he was the United, ambassador of the United Nations, and she said that help got her through something, she was really frazzled by, by everybody complaining and everything. And I, there are hundreds of stories that I've heard about just simple acts of you know, generosity and kindness that really, more than anything else, 
define my dad. And there are a lot of people that do that. It's just not, you know, in our, com in our culture now, that's not viewed as um, something interesting. I have but to tell you, there's this iconic photo of the five living presidents in the Oval Office yeah. after President Obama got elected. He was president-elect. Your brother invited him to the Oval Office, invited the other presidents for lunch. Uh, and I was in the back of the room when that picture was taken, and President-elect Obama called me over and to introduce me to your dad, and, and along with Robert Gibbs, our press secretary, yeah. he said, you know, Mr. President, this is Robert Gibbs, David Axford, these guys helped me uh, get elected. And your dad said, nice going, boys. <laughs> it was just such a, a warm, uh, a warm thing. But um, uh, at, the, at the funeral, uh, your brother made this very moving eulogy, and he broke down at the end. And I noted that when he went back to his seat, you reached over Laura, and you kind of nudged him, and you said something, and you smiled. Uh, what was it that you said to him? I think I said, you fumbled on the two-yard line, but you recovered and scored. Because <laughs> he got to the very, very end, and uh, I know it's, I had to give the eulogy to my mom. Yes. And I, I really struggled with this, because you, know, you love your parents in, in big stage. You don't want to start going, you know, start crying uncontrollably. So <laughs> the way I did it was, no disrespect to President Obama and yeah. President Clinton, but they're on the other side of the room. So I'm looking out and I'm seeing the former presidents, not seeing my dad. And um, while I admire all former presidents, I didn't feel like I had an emotional connection. So I got yeah. through the talk. And I think George did the same. Um, but he, it, was a, it was very moving. And so the whole thing was great. Um, and, you know, the point, the, why there was so much interest in this is they, there was kind of a consensus this was a bygone era. This was the end I of an era. I want to ask about and, that. And that's yeah. wrong. That right. is totally, the, the idea, you know, look, we, we're so self-absorbed in the here and now now. That's kind of our, the baby boomer cultural contribution to our country. It's all about us and our feelings and the here, you know, everything's in the moment and all that. Culture is not, doesn't just march linearly. Life doesn't either. There's, there's always uh, the chance to restore the things in the past that are important. In fact, I think it's really important to have a sense of history and a sense of who we are as a nation. We're, we can't just break ourselves up in our tribal parts and then be mean and ugly to one another. Uh, there'll be a point. There'll be something that happens that restores this. It's not an end of an era. There has been a pendular kind of yeah. quality to our history. So, you know, look, you've got the Gen Zs and millennials, which will be the dominant political force and economic force and cultural force already making huge differences in what we eat and the styles and what we watch. All of that's being driven now by younger people. My guess is that They'll, they'll be a spark in their generations that will be much healthier than what we have now. Well, I work with them at the University of Chicago. I know you're teaching at uh, Penn uh, now, and uh, I go home hopeful every day because of these young people, yeah. because they're, they they're feel a sense of investment in the world. They've lived through some real difficulties. They don't take things for granted. They know they have a role to play, and they're, and they're more tolerant, I think, in many Absolutely. ways. Absolutely, and they're not as hyper-partisan. Yeah. They don't drive this hyper-partisanship that uh, we're now living in. So I want to ask you about your grandfather, Prescott Bush, because um, he was 
what was then called a liberal Republican. Yeah. I think you have to go down to like the Field Museum of Natural History to find <laughs> one uh, now. But uh, you know, he was uh, like a leader in the movement for birth control. He was a leader on civil rights. He was, and he stood up to Joe McCarthy as a Republican at the height of McCarthy's uh, influence. Uh, what did, what, tell me about him and what you took from him. Uh, well, I was a, like a kid when right. he was around, so we, uh, we tried to stay out of his way. He was a stern guy. Was um, he? Yeah. Uh, his, his wife, my grandmother, was a lot nicer to be with. He was a nice guy, but he, he, was, uh, uh, he was a little more, he was a, a stern guy. When we talked a little bit about politics, he was very, you know, he shared a lot of the experiences he had. Uh, but we normally, our family's not like, Politically, we don't. I don't know. I never felt like we. It was all planned out. So, he wasn't like the Joe Kennedy right. telling his children, "Okay, you do this, you run here." None of that stuff. Uh, for him, it was his first job in politics was being the moderator of the. The they had a town hall system in Greenwich. That's how they ran the. I think they still do that in Greenwich, some of the municipalities. Yeah. So, he would come home from work and you know run the run the town hall meeting that made the decisions about the budget and other things. And from that, it led to um, the United States Senate, where he, he lost a couple of times, too. So that, uh, that experience. Family tradition. I, exactly. Oh. Um, the, 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 the challenging of McCarthy, um, that, was that something that you guys were aware? I'm not, not when you were a child, but later yeah. that. No, absolutely. Uh, Looking back on his career. Uh, there were a few things that, that really mattered. His relationship with Eisenhower was very strong and allowed him to be a pretty effective senator from, from Connecticut. And then challenging McCarthy at the, in the, one of the first, I think Margaret Chase Smith may have been the first uh, uh, senator to do that, uh, was, was something that he was known for and respected for. Your dad uh, began in politics in earnest in the 60s, mm -hmm. uh, ran for the Senate. Uh, it was sort of interesting, he ran uh, as a Goldwater Republican in 64, opposed the Civil Rights Act, uh, lost. Johnson landslide, he wasn't gonna win yeah. in Texas. He came back and ran for the House, but it was a different approach to, to it. And when he got elected to Congress from Houston, he ended up supporting an open housing yeah. law at, at great personal risk. Yeah, his life was threatened. And what I, what I admire about what he did was instead of like going into the witness protection program, which politicians these days seem like they don't want to confront the, you know, the folks that disagree with them, so they go out the back door, they do whatever they have to do. They have, they have Twitter town hall meetings or they don't confront these things. He, he went into a very hostile crowd and defended his vote and won a lot of people over. Yeah, um, he stood on. He stood his ground. Told people why he did it. I think he earned people's respect for doing that. It's a good. Were you lesson around in then, or were you already at school? I was thirteen, so I don't know. I think I was in school. So uh, you did go away to to prep school, uh, and you went away at a particularly tumultuous time for the I'm country. Kidding. Uh, talk about that because Vietnam was very much on the minds of young people all over the country, and there was a ferocious uh, movement to try and stop the war. And you must have been touched by all that, and your dad was in the Congress at the time. How did you process all of that? 
Yeah, so he was uh, either, he was, when I was in, at Andover, he was CIA director or head of, uh, UN ambassador, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. And, um, and so, or the, I think he had three jobs during my time, so the RNC chairman, mm -hmm. all of which were tumultuous, fraught, you yeah. know, fraught with all sorts of, you know, challenges. And the environment up, up in New England at the time, particularly for college kids, was total engagement, total protest all the time. And students in, in from my school were chained to the federal building as high school students. It was a, a, it was a very, it was a difficult time for a guy from Texas to go up to, um, to a school that was like, you know, very cynical, very different than what I was used to. Um, I didn't participate in the protests, but you know, you, you couldn't have helped feel, uh, you, you know, it's easy, to, the, the broad majority of- Did you of, not you know, participate because you were worried about I was, it I being know. held on your dad's account? Not really. I mean, I think he would have respected. Uh, I mean, I wasn't going to chain myself to the federal building because I didn't know. I didn't have any money to get out of. <laughs> it was, uh, but it was. It, when people talk about how bad the world is right now, I re, you know, try to remind them what this early, yeah. late seventy, late sixties yeah. and early seventies were, where we assassinated presidents and, and you know, civil rights leaders, and there were riots and the protests in Vietnam. You know, imagine what would happen today if. Um, if you had uh, National Guard shooting students, as they did in Kent State. I mean, th there was, this yeah, was it a was, turbulent, was, turbulent yeah, time. No question. And so, um, getting through that. How'd you feel about the war yourself at the I was, time? I was not a supporter of the war at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you, you know, I, 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 you know, look. You probably had to make a decision. Your, your brother went into the Air National Guard or something. So, you, you probably had to make a decision so I, to whether know, go into the draft. I did go in the draft. You, you don't have a decision to do that. You're kind of well. You obligated. could be a con yes, but you could have also no, no, petitioned for. No, I, I got in the draft. I was. It took ten minutes to become one A. Literally, you drive down to Houston. You put your everything but your underwear on. They look at you. Okay, you're in. That was mm -hmm. basically it. And I was, um, I was set to go to uh, basic training uh, three months later, and that's when Mel Laird. Uh, eliminated the, the, or the, we went to the, my year was 25, the mm -hmm. first 25, and I was like 28, so I didn't go. And then, and then the draft was eliminated the next year. The Vietnamization process had taken hold. I'm, I always think about what would have happened had I um, been drafted. It would have changed, you know, my life because it would have, would have put a, I was prepared to, you know, I wanted to get married and I wanted to move on with my life, and it would have shifted all that a little bit. Your dad, uh, we, we talked a little bit about this before. Um, first of all, he ran for, he was in, in many ways known for his civility, bipartisanship, the, 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 uh, the way he uh, cherished democratic institutions and so on. Um, the 88 race though was a tough, tough yeah. race. Uh, and Lee Atwater was his campaign manager. Roger Ailes, was, who started yeah. Fox News, was his media consultant. The camp, you know, it was the time of Willie Horton and uh, Just to remind Flash. people, that was first done by um, Al Gore in the primary. The Willie Horton, yeah. uh, the Willie Horton uh, charge. But um, how did he feel about that? Jim Baker was, uh, I saw quoted somewhere as saying he he knew he had to do what he had to do, but he wasn't particularly comfortable. I think with that's it. right. Uh, but underlying all of the 
correct notions that my dad was a person of civility and you know of generosity he was also a fierce competitor and um, he was losing to Dukakis oh, like 17 points yeah on. right after the Democratic yeah. convention so the um, you know you you, you got to do the compare and contrast in politics and there were some issues that I think really showed that uh, Governor Dukakis uh, in his time as governor was out of step socially and culturally with a majority of the country. And so there were three or four issues, uh, one of which was the, the early release of prisoners or their, you know, giving them a chance to take weekends off and a convicted uh, murderer was allowed out. I mean, that, that, that's like a, a layup in politics. Yeah, you now, know the problem is the racial, right. you know, the racial charge. If Willie Horton was white, you would, you know, there'd be universal um, recognition that that was a that was a bad policy that was reversed by uh, Governor Dukakis's successor for sure, but um, adding race to the thing was what probably made my dad really uncomfortable. Um, he had an extraordinary one term: uh, the end of the, the you know the Berlin Wall falling, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, which he managed. Yeah. Uh, Reunification of Germany. Taking out of Noriega, and then the Gulf War. The Gulf War. <laughs> it was like it was pretty all-in, um, active. Sure. And in the midst of it, he also had to make a decision about taxes yep. and about uh, uh, agreeing to a package that included tax increases to try and deal with budget deficits. Uh, after having famously said at the Republican convention, "No new taxes." Um, he uh, apparently wrote in his diary or, or dictated that he, he felt like he may have uh, ended his career with that decision. Did you talk to him at all? I did. I, I actually um, opposed the idea for the reason that I'd wanted him to win. I mean, I'd, in retrospect, it worked. It created budget constraints that Republicans and Democrats adhered to for a long while, the pay-as-you-go uh, issue created the environment where later on President Clinton could claim that he was the first president to preside over budget surpluses. That's, that was the 91 agreement that created that. It also had in it um, Social Security reform. Presidents often claim credit of for course. the economic uh, achievements yeah, of their predecessor, even to this day. Fair game. I'm not, I'm not yeah. uh, but the reality <laughs> yeah. is that uh, that sacrifice politically yeah. yielded a good result. And by the way, that PAYGO was eliminated when Republicans controlled Congress. So that lasted all the way into the mid-2000s. And um, one small complaint about our party is that we no longer are the party of fiscal restraint. Well, it's, you, it's troubling. You, you said earlier that the tax, you, you think the tax cuts uh, were a worthy achievement, but they also have contributed to these deficits. They have. Uh, the principal reason why our deficits, you know, we have a structural deficit, 3% growth in a trillion dollar deficit is the social contract is all of the incremental increases in spending, almost all of them are Medicare, Medicaid, the unfunded portion of the Social Security retirement system. Um, those three, big three, and, and increasingly the Obamacare uh, subsidies, all of those entitlements, if you're not going to deal with that, you can't be cutting taxes and expect uh, that we're going to have a declining deficit, we're going to have an increased deficit. So but you would have cut them nonetheless. I would have cut taxes to stimulate economic growth for sure, but, but I think we also need to have a consensus about how we reform our system of entitlement 
because there is no, it's not sustainable. It's $50 trillion of, a, of you know, contingent liability, which means you, know, you extend the retirement age a month every year. You give, uh, you give working elders the chance to keep the, their, the employee portion of the payroll deduction. You change the formula for what the, how the payments work to make it CPI-based. You allow Medicare, you require Medicare beneficiaries of higher income to pay more. There's all sorts of things that you could do, but it requires a bipartisan consensus and there's no effort. I mean, we had, in 16, we had two candidates that said we don't have a problem. You, you know what the response, though, is to what you just said. We, we, in the last decade, the top 10 percent of Americans have seen their uh, net worth grow by double digits, and the median family has seen it fall by 34 percent. And this is the trend that we're in. So how we break out of that, because I, I you know, as someone who actually believes in capitalism and believes in democracy, it seems to me we're, uh, we're, we're really on, on yeah, the bigger issue isn't it's not a, a desperate plane here. It's not either or. In other words, it's, if someone's successful in the one percent or ten percent, that that is not at the expense of someone who's not in the ten percent. So the issue is how do you how do you deal with uh, the middle class squeeze? I think that's the the bigger issue. Um, and but if you give tax cuts that are disproportionately where well, the benefits dis, dis, disproportionately fall in the same. Tax to the cuts, same people who are doing very well. Sure, but tax cuts uh, are disproportionately going to higher income because they pay disproportionately higher taxes. You know, 1% pays 40% of all the taxes. 10% pays 70%, I believe, of all the personal income taxes. So you can't have a tax system that doesn't, you know, a major, you know we're close to where 40% or close to that don't pay any taxes at all. So the, the issue is what do, we, what do we do to create sustained economic growth where people can benefit, where you have rising income? And we've had rising income the last Obama year and the first two years of the Trump presidency, all of which is good. I mean, that gives people confidence that they can um, be successful. So training, regulatory reform, making it possible for new businesses to start up, all those things over the long haul I think are a better approach. You, you ran for governor in, in, in 94 and lost. Yeah. You ran again in 98, and education reform became kind of the central organizing uh, theme of your campaign. That was, and, and it's been since. This is an issue that is yeah. of, great, uh, of great passion for you. Why? I just, I think it's the, it's the uh, to, your, to your legitimate concern about uh, the gap between people of wealth and people in the middle and people in poverty, how do we break out of it over the long haul? It's to give people, young people, the chance to uh, achieve earned success. And you can't do that in the world we're living in without a quality education. And so many young people are left behind and excused away, whether it's in Chicago or Miami. You know, a third of our children graduate from high school truly college and or career ready. That's just not acceptable. And so, you can, you know, the argument that on my side is the system doesn't work. The argument for people that support the system says you all are bad, the system works great. We, get, we need to get beyond that and say whatever you think it's great or think it's bad, it doesn't matter. It needs to get a lot better. And so our foundation focuses on that. And as governor, um, I, I, you know, I did as well. I did it as a candidate in 98. I didn't in 94 as much. I've, I went to visit 250 schools, which is 
kind of hard to do in a year-long campaign. And uh, this is in '98. '98, and you you see the great six, you know, the great heroic efforts of teachers. You see teachers that have really kind of lost their enthusiasm for it. You see kids. I I tell the story a lot. There's a kid in 1998, Florida had an eighth grade level high school graduation test. In and of itself is pretty depressing. Yeah. Most states didn't have any graduation test. Right. And a kid was preparing to take that test for the last time. If not, he couldn't graduate from high school. And the, and the question was, I looked over his shoulder in the computer lab, baseball game starts at 3, ends at 4.30, how long's the game? And the answer is not nine innings. It's obviously an hour and a half, and he couldn't answer it. Like, he's in 12th grade and couldn't answer that question. There's a moral imperative here. This, is, this child did not have, this young man did not have learning disabilities. He was a product of a system that just pushed him along without uh, caring about whether he could, you know, do the basics to be able to, to live a productive life. And so I'm, I'm passionate about this because I see this is one of the most important things that we can do as a society to, to uh, make sure people have a chance to, to rise up. If not, these gaps in income and culture and all the things now that separate us. Uh, Robert Putnam and, and uh, Charles Murray have written brilliantly on this subject. We are tearing our country apart without a debate. And um, education is the path forward to unite us again. And the three prongs of, of reform that you've advocated that you try to implement here in Florida uh, go to standards, uh, to accountability, and to choice. Right. Um, and st standards meaning you have to attain a certain proficiency and schools and students would be, will be measured by their prof proficiency. And, and how they do on learning gains, yeah. And uh, accountability means that there are consequences yep. uh, for, for uh, schools that, uh, that underperform. And choice obviously is about uh, charter schools and, and vouchers. And you know, when the Obama administration came into office, a lot of the ideas that you had were ideas that were embraced by yeah. Arne Duncan. Uh, the, the idea of a common core, that there are certain standards that should be national, that every child in America ought to be able uh, to attain. In fact, your father, I think, in 1989, when he was president, was part of a big conference right. in Virginia where he, he, he agreed that there should be national standards. Your brother uh, uh, tried to move forward on that with no child left behind. Obama did it. 44 states adopted these common core standards, and then it got kind of caught up in politics. And now you see, you saw this alliance between the Tea Party and the teachers unions. Yeah, yeah. so the, the common core standards were voluntarily created uh, by 44 states or 46 or eight 46 states to start with. And it was the National Governors Association, the state school officers, after I left. So th this was an initiative that was done in the like 2008 to 2010 timeframe. The pres President Obama endorsed it, which became kind of part of the problem because there was a notion that somehow it was federalizing standards, which um, was not the case. So it's and a microcosm. It's a, it's a parable about our politics. It is. It's very much so. And so people began to believe that the, you know, Arnie Duncan was going to be—he's going to be the superintendent of all schools—and um, it was a total mess. And even today, there's the remnants of that. But basically, well, your, own what you your own governor ran against Common Core 
standards. He did, he did, uh, and, but we've changed our standards uh, and, and there'll be further modifications. The important thing, commonality is fine. I don't have a problem with that. As long as there is a diverse, all sorts of diverse strategies to achieve the expectation of what those standards mean. And that's, that was what uh, was the intent of this. Um, but high standards with accountability around those standards where you assess faithfully, you don't over-test, but you assess where, where children are uh, and you develop strategies to make sure they catch up. All of that is really important to, to deal with and these And presumably providing gaps. the resources for schools to do that. Yeah, yeah. So this is a, a you know, this, this needs to be done at the state level. People are fearful of too much intervention. And frankly, uh, the center, the, the center left, center right coalitions around school reform have been tattered now because of this hyperpartisanship. It's kind of, it's actually created a contagion that goes into that as well, which is which is too bad. You, uh, Betsy DeVos, was on the board of your yeah. foundation, and you recommended her uh, f to be education secretary. She's run into a whole bunch of controversies. Yeah. Um, you roll back campus sexual assault standards, civil rights uh, uh, protections that that had uh, been uh, built up over the years, and the, but the th uh, the thing I want to ask you about are for-profit colleges, which have a notoriously bad re uh, record of graduating students and a no notoriously bad record of larding a lot of student debt on these students, and the administration's kind of rolling back on that. How do you feel about that? I think there ought to be uh, regulation for all colleges and outcomes really do matter. So there are public universities, private not-for-profit universities and private for-profit universities that do really good work and there's some that do bad. And the lever that the federal government has is the student loan program. It's been nationalized in effect and it ought to be, it ought to apply to all of them. And when you have, uh, you know, gainful employment formulas, put aside whether the exact means by which it was being done before and now it's how it's being done, you can argue about the, uh, the benchmarks for that. It does, it's important to have uh, meaningful results. If you can't get a job and you're loaded up with, non, you know, with recourse debt, there should be severe penalties. You should lose the ability to access well, the Particularly if program. that's your business model. If you're yeah, or, or even for, I mean, public universities have dismal results as well, and they're subsidized by the taxpayers, and there should be some accountability there. So, which, you know, that's, that's probably done better at the state level. The, uh, you can do that better. Florida has a really good example, you know, example of that where they reward schools that improve their graduation rates. They take money away from schools that don't. What's happened, you know, when you do that, you end up getting more students graduating. But we have $1.5 trillion of debt now on the backs of students. And that's, that goes, other than paying your taxes, that's the first thing you have to pay. Right. I think it's ending up deferring kind of life's journey. So reforming that across the board. I'm, you know, I, I speak a lot of different places, a lot of liberal crowds, moderate crowds, nonpartisan crowds, conservative crowds, and I defend Betsy DeVos. And um, it's, a, a, it's pretty amazing what people think of her. I know her to be a, a, a very, uh, compassionate and passionate person for particularly for kids that um, have been left behind traditionally. One of the things that happened uh, that contributes to that is she was on 60 Minutes. You, you talked about all the schools you visited and she was asked uh, whether she had visited a low-performing public school and she said I hadn't thought about that. 
Um, would you? She look. She got off to a bad start. We'll leave it at that. But okay. I think she's done a good job, and um, I'm going to be loyal to her because I know she would be uh, loyal to me. Guns. Uh, what happened at Parkland here in your state? Mm -hmm. It kind of stunned the country. It's tragic. Has has this sort of growing momentum behind these kind of mass shootings? Have they? Has it changed your own thinking about? Well, about this issue? Not really. Um, it, it changed, it, what I learned was that an 18 year old can, can, can access, can buy a gun. I thought it was 21. So they the state of Florida changed that law and I think that's appropriate. We already have background checks. What I, what I think the lesson of Parkland is uh, beyond the, the issue of guns that, that you know, is legitimate to talk about is how the adults all around Nicholas Cruz um, did, didn't do their jobs, from the sheriff to the deputy sheriff who didn't go in, trained to do so, to the school superintendent that created, basically came from Chicago, this uh, a, a, implemented poorly, I'm sure, a second chance kind of um, strategy for kids, uh, all of which sounds good, except this guy was way off, you know, was already on the ledge, uh, who was who was sending messages uh, that were clear signals of, of um, potential acts of violence on the internet, was threatening people, was, uh, had issues in his own family. The Department of Children and Families in Florida um, uh, investigated. The FBI was involved in this. The convergence of all these adult agencies that were, are designed around protecting innocent uh, civilians and innocent students all failed in one form or another. But the, but, but the availability of guns to him and others who commit these crimes deserves attention, doesn't it? In many cases, uh, yeah, for sure. If, and here's, here's one thing that could be added. If, you are, if, if you're clearly mentally unstable, um, there needs to be much, a much better way to um, share that information so that when you do the background checks, it's clear that this person shouldn't get a gun. And um, our systems, you know, we, we have three levels of government. It's, it's complicated. Uh, I'm sure it's complicated, but this is a national priority. And I think making sure that people, look, he, he spiraled out of control. And there was clear evidence that that was the case. He shouldn't have been able to access a gun for sure. Um, but the answer typically ends up being, let's take away the rights of all sorts of people that have nothing to do with this and I think there ought to be a more laser-like focus on the mental health issues. Uh, and when you identify it, you don't just say, well, it's not my job. But universal background checks wouldn't take people's rights away, would it? No, and we have them. They're not uni universal well, they're except for game sh gaps. gun shows. Well, they're, gun shows, but gaps. he didn't buy a gun in a gun show. Um, I want to take you back for a second to election night in 2000 <laughs> when you were in your brother's suite. Yeah on election night when he was running for president, and now you realize it's all coming down to Florida. It's all coming down to Dade County. And the original call was it wasn't going his way. Um, well, actually, the original call was from candidate Al Gore. No, no, but I saw on television. Oh, yeah, oh, yes, oh on, okay. On TV. You're, I fast forwarded yeah, to Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yes. And then Gore called back and said, your little brother doesn't get to decide who wins this election. But what was your feeling 
when you were standing there and the whole election. So we were having dinner prior to the you know, results. So it was six o'clock in Houston. They call Florida at seven and it stunned me. I was the chairman of the campaign. I knew it was gonna be close. I thought we were gonna win. And it just like, I went and hugged my brother, told him I loved him and I was gonna go upstairs and start making calls. So Carl Rove gave me a list of radio talk shows in Sacramento and Phoenix and And you were the sitting governor at the time. Yeah, I was taking the day off. (laughs) So I started making calls to say, it's not over, fight the fight, you know, whatever. And I spent two hours doing that and then Carl called me and said, you can come back down. (laughs) It looks like it's not, it was premature. And then we went over to the governor's mansion much later in the evening and Gore calls to concede and I, uh, I said, George, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, back then there was no, the, the internet was just totally blocked because there were so many people going into the little tiny broadband yeah. of 2000. The State Department's, Department of State's website was just blown up. So I, I called friends in Miami who were giving me precinct by precinct what was left. And it was predominantly Democratic precincts. And I said, and then as, it, as we were like, I was trying to convince him, which, you know, imagine, he just has been, his opponent has conceded the race. He's, there's 20,000 people outside. It's three in the morning or two in the morning. He wants to go and I'm telling him, like, you better be, I'm not sure you should do this. And uh, he handled it as probably better than I would have. Uh, Didn't handle it great, but he handled it pretty good. When you told him that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then it happened pretty quick that the numbers started changing. And in the midst of this, Gore calls back. Mm-hmm. So they were seeing the same numbers. And, and then, you can't make it up. I mean, yeah, you, you couldn't, you know, there's some things that Hollywood producers <laughs> don't have the creativity to come up with that reality sometimes can, can uh, be even more interesting. No one, couldn't have, no one could have predicted that, and no one could have predicted the nature of his presidency, which was really defined by 9-11 yep. and, and the war. And um, uh, you, you saw him struggle with that. Um, and, you know, his political standing uh, took a, a big hit. Um, how, how did you work through that, and how did that impact on you? It didn't impact me, um, but as a loyal brother uh, who loved him, it hurt. And I, I always felt like the, the last two years particularly, they gave up fighting for, you know, not, not I mean, George to a certain extent, but the team... They were getting pounded so hard. They just kind of just started to say, okay, we can just take the incoming. And I, I always thought that was wrong. Um, the surge was successful. There were elements of, uh, other elements of life. The whole world wasn't just about the war on terror. Uh, and the war on terror was successful in some ways and they stopped defending it. Um, I think you just get beefed so hard, you kind of stop, you know. Just like, you, you actually, in the campaign in 2016, you, you were asked if you knew what you knew now. Yeah, I struggled with it too because I wanted to be loyal to my, my brother. Um, I think even he said, yeah, I mean, obviously a new set of facts and so on. Yeah, he, he gave, me a, gave me a lifeline, but it was a little too late. I, I just, uh, uh, it was interesting being governor for six of those years and, you know, there were times where the state of Florida's interests weren't like front and center and the damage was being done in some ways. And um, I always, like the, the hurricane responses, you know, I never blamed FEMA for anything. 
FEMA didn't do a great job, but they, you know, it wasn't their job. My job was to do with, deal with that. We were grateful for the support. I never felt like a 2,000-person agency, you know, in the bowels of some department in, in Washington, D.C., was going to take care of 19 or 18 million people so in the state that the I love. Katrina. Katrina or eight hurricanes and four tropical storms that we mm -hmm. had. So it's easy to blame Washington when you're supposed to be doing a job and it's not working out as well. I never did that because I wanted to be loyal to him. People speak much more uh, warmly about him now, maybe in part because of the contrast of, of what yeah, was in the... That's common. That's in the, isn't that a natural thing? People kind of forget the, the reasons why they dislike someone and they see them anew and, you know, George is um, he's so comfortable with himself. He's He's hilarious. He's uh, respectful of the office. He doesn't get out there and, you know, pine on everything. Uh, and he's just a good man. And so people see that now and kind of forget about other stuff they didn't like. Same. I mean, I've, I've had that experience too. <laughs> you know, they people, love you now. They huh? love me now. Like, where were you, dude? You know, like, <laughs> well, did I you... see you outside my office with a big poster blocking people coming in? Or whatever? <laughs> are you Are you done? Do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Never run for office again. No, no, I think it's actually, I, I actually think, we, we talked about this a little bit, I think it's time for a new generation to, to take hold here. It's, uh, there, there are a lot of people just clawing, you know, on, holding on. Good people, but, you know, you're, I'm 66, and for the field of presidential candidates, I'd actually be a youngin' in the Democratic primary. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's, there, what will likely happen is that uh, from here forward, you're going to find talented people in their 30s and 40s that will be the next leaders. And I would encourage that, actually. I think we need a whole new mind. We, just, we, we need to think differently about the role of government, how government works, what are the values that we share. All those things, I think, it's much, it'll be much easier to get to that consensus with younger people and with the old guys holding well, one on. One of the young people whose name comes up in your party is named George P. Bush. Yeah who you know well, because he's your <laughs> son and he's the land commissioner. Yeah, I'm proud of him. In Texas. What, what advice have you given him about how to navigate this political environment? Yeah, so his, his political environment is, is um, it has to be navigated because you have, um, it's a microcosm of the, of the Republican Party nationally. And my advice is, A, do your, you know, you're there to do your job and the job's interesting. Be really good at your job. Uh, and you can tell a story about about what you did, and be be true to who, who you are. So when a you know when a executive committee member of the Texas Republican Party spouts out white supremacy, pound him. That's un, that's just it's uncalled for. When people think they're they're being big shots when they you know shout out anti-immigrant um, slurs, call them out. You know, you don't have to do every, you know, everything in the world. You don't have to be the arbiter of what's good and what's right. But there are times when I think too many elected officials particularly are silent and it enables the kind of behavior for the next person. And he's done it. And it's, you know, there's a risk associated yeah. with that. Um, and I admire him for the courage of doing it in a, you know, in a kind of you, a difficult environment. Do you worry when you, you speak out on these things, do you worry that it's going to be on his account? I probably should worry about it more. Mm -hmm. It happened, and I, he's. Do you ever have to talk with you like your, you did with your mom when she said we have too many bushes? No, but I'll probably do it after this uh, interview. <laughs> he'll, he'll give me a call. I, you know, 
I've done some things that in, the, in retrospect, I said, well, you know what, it's great, you're the old guy, you shouldn't opine. I believe in these things, you know, and I, but I, there is a, it's, it's time to let him be the, let it, you what know, are not, your he doesn't need to be having my, you know, he doesn't need my baggage on top of his. What are your hopes for him in politics? Well, this will make, this will get him all upset, but I hope uh, there's an opportunity down the road where he can run for governor. It's the best job in the world. Mm-hmm. There's, there's nothing better to create the agenda and to act on it and to lead people towards it. And Texas is a phenomenal state to, to do something like that. You know what they call him down there, don't you? They call him 47. <laughs> you, you see that? Yeah, I, I, no, I don't. That's what I, what I hope is that he has a chance to serve you know, as governor. If not, he's got, you know, he's really talented, he and, both he and his wife. They'll be successful in everything they do. Governor, great to be with you. Thank you. So I remember you lost 40 pounds before you ran for president. <laughs> Why you bring that up, Dick? You lost, and you come back, and you invest in a donut shop. Yeah. What kind of statement was that? Well, this is an experience, not a, not a place this to is, buy donuts. Yes. So yeah, people come here. This is art. They take pictures of their donuts. They sit outside, <laughs> and they talk about their donuts, and they have coffee, and they spend an enormous amount of time spending um, a lot of enjoyable experiences with this. And so this family-owned business, they're my friends, and I'm, my son and I have a chance to invest in it, and we're going to expand it, and I think they're going to do well. You I don't have to you, eat them all. You've, yeah. Well, I'm afraid I'm going to. I should push <laughs> them away. Uh, I want to talk about Miami yeah. and why you came here in the first place, and somehow, like every good story, it feels like it began with a girl. <laughs> That's exactly right. I met my wife when I was 17, and I fell madly in love. And I, in Mexico. In Mexico, and I tell people my life can be defined between BC and AC, before Columba and after Columba. And after Columba, I got married right when I turned 21. I got out of school in two years. We had children. We moved to Venezuela. Um, so our family's bilingual, bicultural, and Miami at 1980 was different than it is now, not as vibrant, but I felt like it was a place where my children could grow up and be proud of their heritage and still be part of our country, and it turned out pretty good. Before, you say before Columba, yeah. uh, you were kind of a screw-up, is fair to say. At You went to prep school, you were in Andover. Yeah. Uh, I think you called yourself a cynical turd at a cynical school at one point, which probably didn't make you alum, alumnus of the year. Um, but um, yeah, but it's, this it's, really, you really did have this trend. You went down there on a school project. Uh, yeah, it to, was transformative for sure. I mean, it would be a blessing if everybody had that chance to have their everything aligned the right way at an early age. And it, for me, it was, um, it, it's not... You know, I tell this story in front of crowds, and the women go, oh, and the men go, yeah, right. <laughs> but it, it, was a, it was love at first sight, and it just motivated me to um, get on with life. I skipped over a bunch of stuff that people think are really rewarding, like going to college. I got out of college in two years, and, but I, I, it, was, it was phenomenal. A lot, I mean, a lot I, of people f- fall in love when they're 17, but they don't often marry the person yeah. uh, they fell in love with. It must have been for her challenging though. It was. Your family was not, you're not the typical family. Well, I don't think, I mean, I don't think I told my wife that my dad was the director of the CIA or any of that stuff. I just, uh, it didn't, didn't seem, didn't seem relevant really. And unfortunately I did something I would never hope my children did to me, which was I told my parents we were going to get married 
three weeks or a month later, and they had never met her. Yeah. Bad mistake. 15-yard penalty, lost it down, man. <laughs> my, wife, my mom handled it better than I would have. Uh, but she, she said, well, you're not going to marry this woman until I meet her. I said, yes, ma'am, that's okay. So she came the week before, the weekend before, and then my dad met um, Columba on the uh, rehearsal dinner. And she didn't really speak English then, right? Not much. Now she's yeah. fluent and she's an American citizen. And, but uh, she's and how, still... How, how'd your folks... I mean, culturally, how did they... They were fantastic. Just unbelievably accepting and embracing. And um, they kind of, they probably saw me as like a, tra you know, serious, transformed. Uh, so she was the magician who made that happen. Yeah, so they said, look at this guy, what the hell happened? And so uh, <laughs> I think they gave her credit for that, which was legitimate. And, and I've always been independent and kind of in this, I mean, I love my family, but I've always felt compelled to kind of do it in my own way. So they were used to that too. That is, uh, one of the things I wonder is, it's very hard for others to understand what it's like to grow up in the, your, your, your grandfather was a senator, yeah. uh, very prominent senator. Uh, your, uh, obviously your dad was a very, ran for the Senate, was in Congress, had a million positions. Uh, in government, and you were a prominent family in Houston, um, and I mean, there must have been a little bit of an approach aversion thing to the whole history of that. You know, I, the, the weird part is, and there are people that have written about this that in the 50s and 60s, the you know the prominent families were weren't isolated from everybody else. Um, I mean, we grew up with middle class values. Our friends were. Some were wealthy, some were not so wealthy. No one really knew, no one really cared, and we didn't talk about the things that I think wealthy families talk about now. We talked about the Astros and yeah. you know Little League Baseball, and we, it, so I never really felt like I was from a prominent family. And my dad didn't you know, get involved in politics till he was 40. So as I was growing up, we were, um, it just never dawned on me that there was anything unique about our, our existence other than in, that we were blessed to have a mom and dad that loved us, you know, unconditionally. Um, when he when he did go into politics, how did things change for you? He must have been gone a lot for one thing. Well, I was in high school at Andover, so I was away, but um, I, you know, I vaguely remember the 64 campaign that he lost. I worked in the 70 campaign that he lost and worked in the congressional races that So you he didn't won. work in the one that he won, huh? Well, I won, I, I, was, I probably licked a few stamps in 66, but I actually won the, uh, sadly, I won the bet in the 1970 race against Lloyd Benson, the pool for what the percentage vote would be, because I got the, I had the lowest winning percentage, <laughs> and I threw the, threw the money away, it was you, uh, you Back in uh, 1980, you were, you were actually a significant player in that 1980 yeah. campaign for president of your father's, in part because you, you were fluent in Spanish, and you traveled around, spent a lot of time in Puerto Rico, yeah. helped him win, uh, win the Commonwealth. Yeah. Um, but you were interviewed at the time, and I saw this interview of a young Jeb Bush, and you said, it's, uh, it's not something I like to do for the rest of my life. I get nervous at first. It's just, I'm not a politician. When did you decide that you were a politician? Well, the 80 campaign, basically 70, uh, year and a half to two years full-time as a volunteer kind of to pay back my dad for being the greatest father alive gave me over time you know I'm introverted and I don't I've overcome all that but 
at the time, I, I, I saw the, uh, all the stuff that looked so weird in politics. I did it, and I kind of overcame any trepidation. But my motivation to, to run for office really happened when I was Secretary of Commerce and saw the potential of what governors Here in Florida, you got yeah. appointed Secretary of Commerce. Yeah, so I, I, um, I kind of slowly got sucked into the vortex of campaigns and things. Uh, but the, the idea of running started with uh, seeing up close the, the power of being governor and the power to set the agenda. And it really was stimulating and exciting. You, uh, you talk about the sort of weirdness of, of, of politics. What do you mean by that? Well, it's not normal to just the whole thing of having to, uh, you do a lot of weird things. You like, in 1964, I remember getting on an elephant with George and <laughs> Marvin and Neil and Darwin. Like, like, in the middle of Texas, for crying out loud, there's not an elephant in 500 miles. Somehow they found one. You just, you do things uh, that are, very public and people are watching and it's hard for, for an introvert well it's hard for normal people to like step up and do that stuff but over time you kind of overcome your fears and your family is a very competitive family I mean uh, you know as genial as <coughs> your dad was yep. he was a very competitive uh, person your mom seemed to be uh, as well um, does that put pressure on you when you enter, essentially enter, enter the family business. The th one thing about politics is you put your name on a ballot and people get to say what they think about you. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm in, we're in the district that Claude Pepper served in, in 1985. The district had changed dramatically as Cuban Americans were registering to vote or switching from Democrat to Republican, principally in response to the the Reagan yeah. Bush policy mm -hmm. towards Cuba. So I looked at the numbers and I said, you know, I, I can win. I was chairman of the Republican Party. I called for up Congress. My, for Claude Congress. Pepper was a yeah, veteran member of Congress. Yeah. So I called my dad up and said, you know, I'm, I, I can be, I can become a congressman. I think I can beat Claude Pepper. Here are the reasons. And he goes, what happens if you lose? Or what happens if you win? Not if you lose. What happens if you win? Yeah. And I'm going, what do you mean? Well, what are you going to do with your children? Are you are you going to move to Washington? How are you going to take care of them? Have you thought about winning? And for the life of me, I hadn't thought about like winning. I thought about the campaign. So that was probably the single most, it was the shortest life lesson I ever had. And it yeah. was like, do it when you're ready to do it. And so for me, it was after my dad was president. It's always, the, the challenge down here was showing your heart, showing who you were, I was, rather than being the son of somebody else. And that's not easy. Isn't that part of why you can't, I mean, I know Columba wanted to move from Houston, is that right? She wanted to go someplace yeah. where she felt more, uh, more, yeah. more comfortable. But uh, I know your dad left Connecticut. Your, your, yeah. your grandfather was a huge presence in Connecticut. Your right. dad went down to the oil fields of Texas yeah. to establish his own identity. Was there a little of the same for you? Yeah, I think so. Um, but it's kind of a, you know, part of the reason that I left, I wanted to get out from my dad's shadow. <laughs> but if you think about it, the shadow doesn't end in the Houston city limits. It was kind of a stupid idea <laughs> at the time. But um, I think there's a natural, in my mind at least, I always thought like I, it would be more fulfilling and purposeful if I did it my own way. And probably if people felt like I was doing it my own way. I mean, that... There was, I'm not a psychologist, but I'm sure there was, there was some deep 
motivation to do it that way. And, and, um, and so 94 was a real challenge because he had just been president. I was running against an iconic you know, guy I'd never lost. I tell people, David, in your class you, would, you can use this. Um, the best advice I always give aspiring candidates is run against a really bad candidate. You have a better <laughs> chance of winning. So in you know, 1994, I think there were Long three chance, Republicans yeah. that, that lost. Ted Kennedy beat Mitt Romney. Um, Dianne Feinstein beat Michael Huffington, and Jeb Bush lost a lot of child. He never lost an election. In the, in the, in the race for governor, and as, uh, as has been written, you were, you were kind of the guy who everybody thought in the family by that time, this is a guy who has some political promise. This is a guy who's going to go places. And then your, your brother, George, yeah. uh, decides he's going to run for governor of Texas. He owns the Texas Rangers. That turns out to be a pretty good place to be if you're interested in running. Yeah, if you're for an owner of the Cubs, it's not a good place to run. <laughs> but if you're Rangers, that's good. Um, you could have run after you won the World Series. That's, that's a good, good time to run. Um, so you guys are both running at the same time. Yeah. And you lose and he won. Uh, you must have had an enormous sort of conflict of feelings about that. I think George felt worse than, than I did uh, just because, I mean, I'll tell you a story. They were, they were going down the hotel in Austin, my dad, mom, George, to celebrate, which was a big victory to beat Ann Richards. Yes. And, and so I called my dad, sadly I called, my timing was perfect. I called to say, I'm, I'm, it's not going to work, I'm going to lose. While they're going down the elevator, it's like, <laughs> you know, so. You, when you love your family and, and someone you know that you love is doesn't win, it's it's harder than yourself losing. So I think I think he suffered more about that temporarily at least than I did. Um, I was really proud of the fact that he won. Your dad, uh, your dad lost several races. He did, um, and he he actually probably lost more than he won. Yeah, I uh, think so. And and did he when he was comforting you, counseling you after that? Did he? have any advice for you on how to deal with the aftermath of that? No, just, look, my, he didn't have to give me advice. He, his, his life lessons were embedded in me without having to... You watch him pick himself up and yeah, move on. Yeah, exactly. So that's, uh, we're not like, we're not a family that sits around on a couch and, a couch and meditates our navel and says, <laughs> oh, woe is me. I remember the day of the election, after the election, I'm taking my kids back in our minivan, you know, back to uh, all three kids back to back to our home way south of here, and uh, I see Governor Childs waving a sign thanking voters, and for whatever reason, I stopped. I just instinctively stopped and went to congratulate him, and that was kind of um, I didn't need a lot of therapy. I mean. I lost, I, I took time to realize, you know, people were telling me all the time, you lost because he did something wrong and, you know, violated campaign rules or whatever. But it, it didn't take me long to realize why I lost. And so once you figure out what you can do better, and learn, you know, the learning experience happens when you lose, not when you win. Right. And um, it was really fact, helpful to me fact, as a human being, frankly, not as a candidate. Most great politicians have lost a race. I mean, your brother lost a race for yeah. Congress. Barack Obama, yeah. eight years before he became president, lost by 30 points. 
in a race, in a primary race for... Did he call for a recount? <laughs> he did not. In fact, he wanted the results put in a vault and forgotten about. But um, so this advice that your dad gave you about, uh, which was great advice about, uh, about think about what happens if you win. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I had that conversation with President Obama when he was thinking of running for president. I said, I'm not worried that you're going to lose. I'm worried that you're going to win and your life will change forever in ways you may not fully appreciate. It's an important conversation. Very. Yeah, and your family's life. Well, and more importantly, the family. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hugely important. And a lot of people, based on legitimate, sincere ambition to, you know, want to serve, forget that the first, you know, the first priority's always got to be family. Yeah. And if you lose that, then you're not going to be a good public servant. You're going to have gnawing away at you your inability to be a loving husband or a loving father. So it was, I'm glad he, you know, I'm glad I called him because I probably would have run and it, I, I probably would have lost. But had I won, it's a little you late in the game to ask them, the, you know, answer yeah. the question after the fact. So family is, uh, they're, they're conscripts, right? You, you're, you're, you volunteer for the duty. Family can come along, they can be supportive and so on, but their lives are inevitably changed. Yeah. You had a painful experience when you were governor. Your daughter was struggling. She yep. had uh, with addiction, and she and that became a national story. Yeah. How how painful was that for you? Well, for both Clem and I, it was very painful to see your daughter kind of spin out of control. Um, she's now thankfully healthy, drug free, working in in Orlando. But for her, you know, to see her struggles irrespective of whether it was a public spectacle or not, is any, any parent going through yeah. this is horrible. But, but then the you, public spectacle piece. You add on top of it, it's just, um, it was really difficult. And, you know, look, the prosecutor and the, the whole system were, were put in a position where they couldn't, you know, they, they couldn't show any compassion because they did, they'd be accused of favoritism. So it was like, it made it a little more difficult. But thankfully in Florida, we have drug courts all across every every jurisdiction in the state, and it's a way for people to have um, you know the, the challenges that they face, kind of the adjudication waived if they if they go stay drug free. And and she went through this in a very public way, an incredible amount of courage, yeah. and kind of lonely by herself, except for you know her mom and dad that were there to help her. Let, let me ask you about you 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 now you're the governor as well. You're a policymaker. When you ran in '94, you ran a very tough anti-crime yep. platform, determinant sentencing, and all of that. Um, did the experience that your daughter went through did it impact on your thinking about the about how the system should deal with? Because there are a lot of people in the prison now in Florida who are there for nonviolent drug offenses, property offenses, and so on. Yeah, there are very few people in prison for um, drug offenses that relate to their addiction. Um, there, are, there are some that are dealers, you know, maybe the level of dealing is too low or whatever, but, but um, we, we created, not so much because of, uh, it wasn't informed necessarily by Noel struggles, um, but it, it added an element to it. We created a drug strategy to deal with this. It was actually the first thing I did. So before Noel had her problems, um, it became a high priority for the legislature and the incoming governor to create this 
forefront strategy that could be applied today in states, you know, to deal with the opioid epidemic. It's more treatment, get law enforcement involved in a more compassionate way, create prevention, prevention coalitions to bring awareness to the challenges, benchmark it to measure how all this stuff works. All those things um, we applied and the legislature was generous with money that they never had done before and, and it worked. And so Noel's challenges kind of heightened awareness. It, it, it connected us to the communities that were suffering with this for sure. Do, you, you see all across the country and, and in Washington, uh, conservatives and liberals now working yeah. together on this issue Very, of yeah. criminal justice reform. You know, in the 90s, it, you weren't the only one. I mean, this, there was the very tough crime bill, and crime was much higher then, but very t tough crime bill and so on. It feels like um, we're in a different place we now. We are. Florida just passed um, the um, constitutional amendment to deal with uh, automatic restoration of voting rights. Did you support that? I did. Mm -hmm. Um, I voted for it. I, you know, in a perfect world, we'd have a system that that was efficiently dealing with this, the restoration of civil rights. But it's over. You know, we have a million people. It just never, we never caught up. When I was governor, I don't think it got any better after I left. So um, I think that's a signal of this, you know, moving towards a restorative justice approach. There's a there was an initiative that started in Texas that I embraced. Maybe the, I was one of the first people to embrace it outside of Texas. Called Right on Crime, Governor Perry. Um, embraced it, and many other conservatives, the Koch brothers, and others mm -hmm. have been, you know, Working hard there's a center, you know, there's a left center right coalition now to, to look at these things. And I think that's okay. I think, you know, part of our problem in the country right now is that we're having a hard time recognizing that 2019 is different than 1999 or 1989. We're stuck with policies that, that may have been relevant 30 years ago, but are not relevant now. So changing your policies to reflect the world we're in now is more than more than appropriate. And I think giving people a second chance is really important. So banning the box, you know, so when employers look at the, you know, they, they shouldn't use a screen that says yeah. you committed a crime, you, you no longer even have a chance. We have full employment. We need to give everybody a chance to achieve earned success. They need the capacity to do it. They have the drive by and large. So we're in a, we're in a totally different world uh, than we were back then, and I think it's more than appropriate to change the policies. I listen to you talk, and you sound like a guy who misses being in the middle of policy making. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I have to admit it. A nerd. I'm a totally, I'm a geek on this stuff. I'm, and I, it, what, I, what frustrates me is that politics overwhelms policy right now. You know, you can be successful politically, and then at the end of the year, look at your scorecard of what you've done, and it can have nothing on it. And yet you're popular, or you're standing for whatever, or you're pushing down somebody, pushing back the evildoers, or whatever. And the country kind of needs people that are driven by policy and solving problems right now, I think. So you came to Miami in, in the late 70s? Uh, 1980, 1981. 1980. Right after the election. So tell me about the Miami that you saw then and the Miami that you see now? Oh, it's just dramatically, dramatically changed. Uh, right after we got here, the Marielle boat lift happened and there was a big period of transition. And um, something happened in the mid 80s, there was a spark and it just, there, there's just constant renewing now. This is a place that was full of, uh, was, you know, a lot of crime 
Wynwood We're in the Wynwood neighborhood. Yeah, and this is now the place where Art Basel comes. It's like one of the most phenomenal art districts in the, in the country. You've and got these murals district. here. Yeah. Uh, all, is, all over the neighborhood. It's, it's just, this has happened in the last 10 years. So artists, art, art, art galleries, um, restaurants, all of this, and, and this is not the only part of Miami that's in trans, you know, transformation like that. Constant renewal really is the description of Miami, you know, at its best is new people come in, they make their contribution, and it's just always moving forward. So it, it begs the question, this is a very diverse city. It's one yeah. of the things that makes it so yeah. lively and appealing, but we live in a time where diversity has become such a flashpoint yep. in our politics. Yeah, I mean, I you know when I ran, it was hard for me to. I had no interest or um, just it, it was so foreign to hear the things that were being said in a Republican primary, because this is my home and this place has got 60% of its population was born in another country, yeah. and my experience is that uh, once they're established here, they love this country. They, you know, they embrace the American experience. The shared values that we need to keep going forward are all here as well. No one feels like they're a victim in Miami. Yeah. They're not playing that that game. They're, you know, they're striving for success, and I love it. Yeah, yeah. The caricature of the immigrant as a marauding band of marauding. Uh, yeah, it's just it's sad, and and it it was painful and hurtful for a lot of people. You know, my wife is an immigrant. My children are Mexican American. Um, it was offensive beyond belief to hear our president talk that way, and others mimic him because they saw that you know that, that somehow they think that 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 wins over uh, folks. Rather than play that game, maybe we ought to fix our immigration system and control the border in the appropriate way, and create a guest worker program, and and do the things necessary to lessen people's uh, fears. You were on the stage when he promised the wall that Mexico. <laughs> yeah, we did. Like, and and you can't make it up. But he's persisting in except not having Mexico pay, but Americans yeah. pay for it. What's your view of, of that? There are places where a wall's appropriate. There's places where it's not. I went to Brownsville three weeks ago and met a guy who has a wall, actually a president in the Obama administration, by eminent domain, put a wall through his property and his house got burned down because they couldn't get through the gate to, you know, on the south side of his property. Um, but it's effective in some places, but technology could be applied, more border patrol, dealing with uh, the number one issue for illegal immigrants are visa overstayers. Right. You know, Kansas City ought to be a place we focus on, or Fort Lauderdale or whatever, but this, this isn't about policy. This is about wedge issues on both sides now, and sadly, um, it's a missed opportunity because this is such a unique American uh, attribute to be able to absorb people that have a burning desire to succeed for themselves and their families. And hopefully you're looking the, at the son of an immigrant. So there you I, go. I, I mean, feel strongly about it. Well, just I mean, around here it's like if you were born in America and your grandparents were American, you're like 5% of the population. So yeah. this is a a good example of of what can happen. Not perfect for sure, but the, when you when you just let the old Texas expression, you let the big dog eat. You just let people pursue their dreams in a dynamic, chaotic way, great things happen. Why wasn't, why was that such an alien message in the Republican primary? Something has changed. You know, when I ran as governor, it was a winning message as a conservative. And governing that way was a winning, you know, strategy. And we, you know, I got a majority of the Hispanic vote. 
I'm on a majority of the Democratic Hispanic vote. I mean, it's something along the way people feel so deeply disaffected and threatened by the changing nature of our country. And, and I don't think we're, as Republicans or conservatives better stated, we've become more reactionary rather than hopeful and optimistic. We're not, we're not gonna win over the long haul by just stoking people's fears, well-founded or not. It's not, I'm not, I'm not you know, casting aspersions on anybody who thinks the way they do, but I think public leaders and candidates you know, should be bigger about than that. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.